You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Midnight Sky. That's either. It's a spaceship. Coming back from a planet that we hoped would be our future. I have to contact them before it's too late. Hey, Sanchez. Yep. How about a little inspiration? Enjoy, kids. has us returning with more answers than questions. Except one question lingers in the air. Our last contact with Mission Control. Three weeks. We've lost contact with NASA and everyone else. Is this a glitch? You really believe that? I have to warn them about the conditions on Earth. Take a deep breath. There is an antenna stronger than ours. We get there, they'll hear us. Is anyone receiving this? It's gonna take a walk outside. Comms is still up. We made a promise to our families. We're being asked to evacuate. Been thinking a lot about time. Why one person lives a lifetime, and another only gets a few years. Come in, Ether. This is Barbo Observatory. Are you receiving this? Alright everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for The Midnight Sky, and the story is as follows. A lone scientist in the Arctic races to contact a crew of astronauts returning home to a mysterious global catastrophe. The film is starring George Clooney, Felicity Jones, David Oyelowo, Tiffany Boone, Damien Bashir, Kyle Chandler, and Kaolin Springal. It is directed by George Clooney and written by Mark L. Smith. Here to join me for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Dan Baer. Sweet Caroline. Up, up, oh. And Tom O'Brien with us, too. And I'm not singing. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so good. So good. <laughs> All right, we're here to talk about The Midnight Sky on Netflix currently, starring and directed by George Clooney. Oh, maybe one of the most inconsistent directors of our time. <laughs> I hate to say it starting off like that, but dear God. Ah, oh, man, where do you begin ultimately? George Clooney making a space movie. He 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 must have rewatched himself in Gravity recently and thought I could do that. And here we are. <laughs> so, George Clooney making The Midnight Sky. Some people have pointed out, including our own Michael Schwartz, that this is Clooney's first directed film since he's become a father. And I do think that there is some evidence of that leaking its way into the emotion and the story. It's also very heavily focused on Clooney's environmental 
activities and how much it is about um, our planet and its, well, its death <laughs> at some point or another. Uh, but ultimately, it's really a opportunity for Clooney to flex his muscles with some of the crafts in this movie in ways that I don't think we've ever seen Clooney really flex before. So how does it all come together? Does it work? Let's toss it over first to Josh. Josh, what did you think of The Midnight Sky? So this movie, I I want to say that actually the first like, I don't know, maybe like 30 minutes of it, I didn't think it was actually that bad. It wasn't great, but I was sort of into the atmosphere that Clooney was creating. I thought that his performance was actually really solid. And I was sort of into the introduction to this world and to sort of generally what the movie was doing. And then after a certain point, which is probably around when they switched first to the astronauts in space, was when I realized that this movie's story was going to be kind of a mess and very muddled. And it really started to go downhill very quickly after that. And I find this movie to be just so shallow in terms of the actual themes that it wants to explore and the characters themselves in which there are basically like no characterization. (laughs) There's no characterization in this movie at all. And by the time you get to the end, which is just like a complete eye roll, I really found everything to just not be that effective in terms of how much it wanted to pull me in emotionally. So there are there's some great craft on display, but overall, I found it to be a pretty empty movie and I was not a fan of it. Okay, let's hear next from Dan Bear. Honestly, pretty much everything Josh said, uh, same. It is just not very good after the first like 30 or so minutes it i was really with it up until a point and then i feel like it has a really really intriguing first act everything with clooney and uh this little girl is really fun in a way that i don't think i've had with a clooney performance in a while um and he, the the chemistry that he has with um, oh Lord Kalen, something is her name, Kaolin Springall, I think. Spring, okay, was not sure at all how to pronounce it. Oh, I don't even know if I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but like, she's great, and she's holding her own against Clooney, and they're kind of going at it, and I really enjoyed it. And then, um, we left that storyline for a little while, and. We moved to the spaceship, and that stuff was not as compelling. And then, but there is one scene or sequence in that part of the story that is really, really well done. I think it's very clear that George Clooney was paying attention while on the set of Gravity. Um, And then the third act just kind (laughs) of completely sputters out. And I just, that ending, I, I, <laughs> I really, like, I threw things at my TV because it was so stupid and so obvious and just, like, ugh. Left with me with a really bad taste in my mouth, which was sad because I did like the first half of the movie a lot. Moving along here, 
Tom O'Brien. Oh, this thing is a mess. But what's what's worse is that it's an annoying mess after a while. Uh, I I like uh, Josh and Dan um, did like the I, I wouldn't give it a half an hour. I'd say maybe the first 20 minutes of Clooney by himself. I mean, he's an act. He's a good enough actor that he can hold the screen when he's just kind of walking around slowly and pouring some cereal and sitting alone at a table. I was still with it. I said, I, I want to know more about this scientist who's dying. And I couldn't imagine what kind of movie would hold me for two hours of that. But nonetheless, and then when the little girl came in, it's like, oh, great, she's mute. And um, then we go to the uh, spaceship. I was beginning to lose interest in the Clooney little girl thing. And so when the spaceship came, I was like, oh, new people and actors I like. This is great. The dullest people in the world. I, I nothing happens on that spaceship, with the one exception that Dan was talking about. And uh, you know, these are really good actors that you could put through their paces, and they'll rise to the occasion. But uh, the Markel Smith screenplay is just there's nothing there. And by the time we get to the uh, the end, and the two stories have kind of a connection, uh, I was gone. Um, you know. That was it. I, 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 and, and also, I mean, a number of the details in it, including, you know, the, the time frame of how the big reveal works. Uh, I, it took kept taking me out of the movie to say, OK, now, does this work time wise? It, 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 it was just kind of totally detached from it. And um, it, it's I, I just couldn't even think of watching it again. Uh, it's because it's a shame because Clooney can be a good director. Um, good night and good luck. And um, I like Ides of March very much. But those are films that he has. You could tell he has passion for them because he has passion for the subjects. And, you know, to if, if being a dad was a big contributing factor for him to do this film. Well, then tell a story about an environmentalist who has a kid and has some family life and it'd be a lot more interesting than this. So uh, I have to say I am not not well disposed to the midnight sky. You know, Tom, what you mentioned there about Good Night and Good Luck and the Eyes of March, they have one thing in common. They're both good scripts. And I've just pretty much come to the conclusion that George Clooney cannot make a good movie out of a bad script. And to be fair, not many people can. <laughs> no. But he keeps on choosing really, really, really bizarre material time and time and time again. And sometimes it's slapstick comedy that just misses the mark. Other times it is a really kind of boring slog to get through which is what this is and part of the reason why i hate to use that term that it's boring is exactly what you described before everything that happens up in space with the astronauts felicity jones kyle chandler damien bashir david oyelolo tiffany boone all of that no characterization zero None. And what little there is, it is not substantial enough to hold our attention throughout. It is aggravating to me. And the reason why is because I agree with what everyone else has said here. I actually think that the first 20, 30 minutes or so where we are with Clooney on Earth, 
that is the strongest material in the film. And every time they cut back to him, even after we go up to the astronauts for the first time, it's still the strongest material in the film. So I just sat there the whole time saying to myself, why couldn't this have been a one man show? And he's communicating with the astronauts, but we never see them like that would have been a much better movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problem with the structure of this film is that the constant back and forth just really interrupts the momentum that either story can really build up. Because even though I do think that the George Clooney stuff is the strongest part, I also think that there's a very interesting story on the other side about these astronauts coming back to Earth that have no communication of what's going on. And like that could have been its own movie itself. But that, I think, also would require you not seeing anything of Earth. And so having this back and forth just really does not help the flow of each of those storylines. And it's very frustrating, frustrating with the Clooney stuff because it's like this seems to be more interesting, but we can't spend enough time with it. And then every time we go into space... You're right, Matt. Like, these are just basic stock characters that really are not given a whole lot of intriguing motivation within their storylines. And so it just ends up being so frustrating to cut back to them. And it's like, you all are boring. And I don't really care what you're doing. But we go back to Clooney and it's like, oh, but we've already like spent so much time away from him. I just want to stay with that character. That's the other thing, too. The imbalance of screen time. They stay away from one storyline for too long to the point that when they do go back to it, you're like, wow, feels like it's been forever since we last touched base with them. Like, you know, it, it does almost feel like it is two movies at times. Yeah. Had had the sequences uh, been shorter, you know, you cut maybe 10 minutes here and then seven minutes here and one place and or 12 minutes in another place. Or how about introduce something that actually has real life and death stakes get some really kinetic back and forth editing going you know think of like what christopher nolan does like with interstellar and the docking sequence and the way that he's able to edit the cross cutting of what's going down on earth with what's happening up in space mm. like how can you not incorporate something like that if you're gonna have two parallel timelines and not give them something that is going to push their storylines forward and connect them in some way. <laughs> I think the thing that doesn't work for me about it is that the while what's happening on the ship is like plot wise, there's a lot of interesting things happening production design wise and the filmmaking for the action sequence is good, but the characters are so thin and while like that is to be expected on some level in these kind of sci-fi stories sometimes because we're talking more about ideas and stuff like that it just you have these really talented actors who are trying their damnedest about people we do not care about so when they're put in danger it's kind of like oh well okay so one of them's going to die i guess and you know exactly which one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it is so does a terrible job of masking like which one is possibly going to die. It's like, hmm, I wonder, is it going to be the A-list cast or the one you haven't heard of before? <laughs> and then they have the temerity to be like, oh no, she's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. And then once they get back into the spaceship, oh no. 
Although that was a very cool um, special effects with the um, I mean, in terms of the visual effects in the movie, you know, I kept waiting for there to be something that was going to wow me. And instead, throughout, I was like, okay, these are visual effects that are good enough to compete for Oscar consideration in 2020. But in no way, shape or form in the normal year would they ever be on anybody's radar whatsoever. Like they are just perfectly adequate and sometimes even not that great, in my opinion. I mean, you look at, once again, Gravity, which is, you know, seven years old at this point, and those visual effects still blow my mind to this day in terms of the suits, the spaceships, uh, what space itself looks like. Uh, I mean, it, it really is mind-blowing. Here, I feel like I've, I'd seen these types of visual effects in other movies, and I just didn't feel like I was seeing anything new visually that, it, you know, I, I, I didn't care about that. So now the only thing that they can then grip me with is do I care about the characters and what happens to them in their life or death stakes situation? And the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, like the effects, they're not bad. There are some sequences I think are a little shoddy. But for the most part, I think that the effects are decent. And I would even go so, so far as to say that sequence that's like the spacewalk is like the centerpiece section of the movie. And I do think that the effects are really great in that sequence. The problem is just that if you don't have anything else to back it up, like you said, then it doesn't really mean that much. And it doesn't really matter if we have a sequence where there's kind of some thrilling action going on. If we don't really care about the people that are involved in that action. And that ends up actually making it feel a little lethargic to me at times where if I'm not emotionally invested in the stakes that are being presented, then kind of doesn't matter how great your effects are because I'm not really invested in the story as a whole. Yeah. And they take such shortcuts with trying to make us care about the characters. Like, Oh, these two are in love and she's pregnant. Which and, ooh, work this one is really close with her sister back on earth. And like, just like very, very easy, easy things that are supposed to be, you know, it's not character building. It's stereotype building. It yeah. Feels, it feels like a bad first draft. Yeah. Yeah. I agree, which is why, like I said, I think there is a better movie in there somewhere, but they needed to take another crack at the screenplay and decide to just, in my opinion, approach it from an entirely different angle altogether if they wanted to make something really, truly great out of it. Or... You know, have Clooney come in and not give it this really, really odd pacing in terms of the, the balance of the two storylines, you know, actually give it a little bit of momentum and energy to it, you know, to get it going. And then you have all these other decisions in the movie that took me out. For example, the flashbacks to uh, Augustine, like being younger and me having to question the entire time if that was just the best George Clooney impersonator they could find on God's green earth or if that was George Clooney doing the voiceover dubbing because man oh man I can't tell you how scarily good that was I scarily think it was, good I think it was a voiceover though it sounded manipulated to me it had to have been <laughs> yeah but like also like this sort this sort of like half storyline like there are two and a half story threads basically because this has what like two to three scenes like and short scenes like across the whole movie i yeah. think and mm -hmm. then of course that ends up being the key 
plot line for the end of the movie for that stupid reveal. I, and the real, okay. And I'm going to say this about that. The reason why the ending is stupid is because we don't care. That's why if, if they had gotten us to care about these characters, gotten us to actually get emotionally invested in this storyline, that twist could have worked. Yeah. But again, like this, it's sort of like screenwriting one Oh one at this point, Mm -hmm. you know, like, it seemed like a genetically engineered twist ending because it doesn't even, there is not the slightest bit of a um, hint that there will be any sort of twist ending to this movie. Well, wait a minute. Didn't one of you, I, I can't remember if it was you, Dan, or if it was Josh, but one of you uh, called me or said like during, while you were watching it, I can't remember which one it was of you two, but one of you was like, this better not be what I think it is. And then when it was, you were like, of course, like (laughs) which one of you was it that figured it out? It was not me. Josh, was it you who figured it out while you were watching it? And me thinking like, God, if this is going to be where it's headed, I'm going to be so upset. And (laughs) one uh, notebook thrown across the room later and turned out to be true. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I threw a pillow at my TV because it also does like the stupidest thing where it just drops this, twist and ends yeah it is yeah not that great a twist yeah. you know compared to something like well mountain time which is <laughs> as it is at least it's something you're not anticipating uh this is just oh god don't make it be this and it is ah uh, uh, man so <laughs> oh god so the entire time like they're building up to this well actually let me rephrase that there is no build up to the twist it it does kind of just come out of nowhere Uh, she literally says her name is Iris and that was like oh that may have been me though because I was like the second she said that I was Mm -hmm. like oh don't fucking tell me (laughs) and then it did that the very next second and it's like oh come the fuck on i uh i audibly screamed like as i was watching the movie and you know when i watch the movie any movie i'm pretty silent usually like i'll be like stone-faced watching laughing when i need to you know but i'm like watching this pretty stone-faced definitely very bored and then when that ending happened i'm just sitting sitting there i'm like lean back i'm watching i'm just like Oh fuck off! <laughs> like just like that. Like pretty much my reaction too. Yeah. And yeah. the reason why it is so frustrating in is because it means nothing. Like yeah. it's a twist that happens, and it's it's supposed to be like, oh, didn't see that coming. And it's like, well, we kind of did first of all, and second of all. But what did it add? Like, what does that relationship, knowing that it is now there, add to anything that? is happening in either of these stories. And the answer is nothing. So it feels like very cheap sentiment that they throw it at the very end to surprise you. But it is just so frustrating because it's like, you didn't need this. This is so pointless that this decision was made. Not to mention on top of that, you then have some of the remaining astronaut characters making decisions at the end of the movie that are also supposed to have dramatic weight behind them. And once again, I'm just like, uh, sure, go for it, bro. I, I, I don't know what to tell you, <laughs> you know, like, because I just don't care. Talked about your family in one scene. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that that's when I threw my other notebook at the 
TV. <laughs> He's got two notebooks. <laughs> You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Uh, Yeah, I was very frustrated by this. I mean, go back then to Clooney on earth getting caught in the snowstorm and screaming out for uh for the girl and Desplot's music is playing and you know I, I was actually like there were some moments with Clooney especially back on earth where I, I was really gripped and I was into it and I really thought that Clooney was delivering a very unmovie star like performance you know he is one of the last few movie stars I think that we have. And this just felt like an anti-movie star type of role where he was so vulnerable, so weak and frail. And I was really, really digging what he was doing. I just wish that the movie had devoted all of its time and energy towards that. Yeah, I was digging it too, except there are so many things that just like, <sighs> he falls into that glacier water and you know, that was covered with ice and is now, you know, cracking and falling apart. He, he, he would be dead. Yeah. He would be frozen solid. Like th that's not a question with how much he's freezing and being in the water. Like, uh, come on. Yeah. Like I can suspend my disbelief, but it only goes so far. He just, <laughs> and I think he just little things like that. Just like break the movie. I think he just wanted that shot of him swimming towards the sinking uh, snowmobile. Ugh. I mean, it's good. I got to say, the crafts are very solid. Good cinematography. 
good, great production design, mm-hmm. um, decent editing. Alexander Desplat is working overtime to make oh. this work. Is he like, ever? I mean, he is doing all the heavy lifting. Yeah. And when you have a cast that has that is this stacked with talent, you shouldn't have the score be doing the heavy lifting. Yeah. Yeah, I did really like the score. I did notice though that there were times where it felt like a little tonally off. Like it would be going yep. for a really yeah. like playful mode, it seemed. And it's like, I don't know if that's super appropriate right now. And I don't know if I necessarily blame Desplot with that or if it's just more so the tonal imbalance of the entire story that isn't really cohesive. But I think there was, even though I had issues with the kind of execution of the music, I think overall it is maybe the strongest element to the film craft wise. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's good as a standalone score, something I would listen to outside of the movie. I agree with you, Josh, there were times where I was watching the images on screen, the tone of a scene, and then Desplat's music would come in, and it just felt so mismatched that even though I think, like, at, on its own, the score is good, mm-hmm. just in the movie, it, it, once again, I, I lay this at the feet at Clooney as a director, because the director can turn around and tell the composer, that's not what I want. I want something more like this. Mm-hmm. You know? And, like, he has the power to do that. But... This is the direction that he decided to go with for the score, and this is what we got, and it is a very Desplat-y, Alexandra Desplat score at times, you know? Yeah, like a lot of things in this movie, it so much, so many of the elements feel like just a bunch of half measures that have never really committed to one thing to do well. And so you've got this giant collage of like all of these ideas. And it was sort of interesting because I felt this way even after I saw the trailer to this movie, where it just felt like every science fiction movie from the last 20 years just jammed together. And yes, I think that's the end result of this movie. <laughs> there's a bit of gravity. There's a bit of interstellar. There's a bit of Ad Astra. It's like the Martian. It, it, yes. Like every science fiction movie you have seen in the last 20 years, some. Something of that is in this movie, but none of it really meshes all that well together and it doesn't flow naturally at all. I'm kind of dying to read the book this was based off now to see if this is all in the book, like like how much of it was adapted for screen, you know? Yeah, I'm really not dying to read the book. Uh, because if you if you spend hours and hours reading it and it comes up with that same stupid ending again, I'd be really pissed. Yeah, well, it might work better in the book. Maybe. That's the thing. I was like, something had to like something about this book had to have been good in order for them to want to make a movie out of it. And I'm dying to know what it was and how it got lost in translation. Yeah, I, I genuinely think personally, I I really believe this. I genuinely think that George Clooney wishes he made Interstellar because I actually think that Interstellar is like touching on so many of the same themes as this movie is, or at least the things that George Clooney, from what I can tell, are the things that are important to him. And it it does. I mean, yes, there are a lot of uh, space movies that this feels like while you're watching it. But I, I, man, Interstellar was the one I kept coming back to the most, just in terms of the environment and a parent's relationship with their child. I, I just, 
uh, it was kind of unavoidable for me. But the problem is that it's never really developed in a natural way that makes you truly invested in the story and the characters. And, you know, part of that might be Clooney and his just inability to really get a handle on this material. But, I mean, to be honest with you, Mark L. Smith, the screenwriter, the same guy who wrote The Revenant, kind of just makes me feel like that's just a pattern maybe with his writing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm a, and I'm a redder apolo- redder. I'm a revenant apologist. I'm also a redditor apologist as well. <laughs> <laughs> um so any final thoughts on the Midnight Sky, Tom? I pass it over to you first. Well, I I think I only wish IMAX theaters were open. If I had to see it, I'd love to see it on a big screen, particularly the scenes of the uh, snowstorm. You really felt cold. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of snowstorms, and this is one of the better ones, I must say. And to see it on a huge screen would have been really nice. But I'm not going to sit through it again once the theater's open. So thanks anyway. All right. Dan Bear. Uh, you know, this is part The Martian, which is like an eight movie for me. It's part Interstellar, which is like a seven or an eight. And it's part Gravity, which is like a nine for me. And this is so much worse than all of those. And that makes me sad. All righty. Josh Parham. The only other thing that I want to just emphasize, and it's something that we have mentioned already, but I want to circle back to it just because it really did bother me. And that is when they cast Ethan Peck as the younger Clooney in this movie, Mm -hmm. but they do something with his voice to make him sound like Clooney. I think it is some kind of like post-production voiceover and manipulation. And I really, really hated that decision because on the one hand, I was sort of glad that Clooney didn't go for like the de-aging thing and that he just cast a different actor. And I think more movies should actually do that. They should have the courage to say like, we're watching a movie. We understand that it's a younger person. But then to give him Clooney's voice, I felt was like such a then slap in the face of the intelligence of the audience. Because it was almost like you <laughs> did the work to cast somebody else. But then it's like, oh, but he doesn't look like the younger Clooney that we as an audience collectively know him to be. So we have to give him his voice. And it just felt like, why? Why did you do that? That was dumb. You just now told me that you didn't think I'd be able to figure that out. And I found it to actually be pretty insulting of a creative decision to make. And it was one of many bad creative decisions in this movie. But honestly, I think that was the one that offended me the most because it really kind of insulted the intelligence of the audience and I really did not appreciate it. So I did have a thing with that where like when I was watching that uh that the first one of those flashback scenes, I was like, oh, so we're supposed to believe that these people are just like mystery people who could be anyone and what is their connection to this when it's obviously George Clooney and someone else. And then they had his voice be exactly like Clooney's and I was like Oh. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess good that they're not trying to play with us in that way, but uh oof. That was not the right way to go about it. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. I have to say that the post viewing meltdown of this movie and what what I mean is me calling up Dan and then calling up Josh <laughs> and then trying to get a three-way call between us at the same time because we were all watching this simultaneously, and I just, first of all, 
I, I just like I just knew deep down I was like, oh, they're going to want to talk about this. I know I want to talk about this. <laughs> and I have to say, like, just kind of decompressing after the movie was over. Honest to God, was more entertaining than the, anything in the movie itself. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Because you go through it and it's like, you know, this is this is fine. And then it's one of those things where like the literally the last like two minutes of the movie, it goes straight to hell. <laughs> and in like the worst possible way. <laughs> yep. Oh, and let's also not forget that uh, another thing that George Clooney uh, decided to take from for the ending for this movie. Uh, he tries to pull a Michael Clayton with the final shot oh, of the film. Oh, yeah. Oh, my uh, God. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Over the freaking credit. I uh, it made me so upset. And you know what? I felt absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I was literally looking at the screen like, uh, are, are you trying to set up a sequel? Like, is that what this is supposed to be? And then, no, we're just, we're watching them play with buttons on the fake space set. Like. Annoying. Is it midnight yet? (laughs) Tom, what grade would you give this? Let's see. Well, if I give, if I give a movie like Capone a two, (laughs) uh, I would give this a three. Got it. Josh, what about you? I am going to give it a four out of ten. It's a movie that, like, I do give it some points, at least for the craft that's on display. And Clooney's performance, for the most part, is somewhat compelling. It's not like a great portrayal from him, but it's, like, decent enough to get me invested. But everything around it is just so flat and dull. And, like, when I go to three out of ten, like, that's a movie that I just really, like, don't like. And I don't know if I feel that strongly about the midnight sky it's just mostly very boring and forgettable so i landed a four out of ten dan (laughs) you say that like you're daring me to not say something (laughs) 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 Um, i okay look i was really on board with this for like the first half of it and then it just got steadily worse and worse over the back half. And I was having a good enough time with it that I give it sort of the benefit of the doubt not to give it a like negative quote unquote or like below passing grade. But when I say it's a five, it's because like it is in every way, like the most middle of the road, mediocre, boring thing. It exists and it's made pretty well. But there's nothing about it that is really great or even interesting or all that fun. I'm going with a four. It, it And you know what? It might be the most generous four I feel like I've given this year. <laughs> but a lot of that is because the production design, the score, the sound. And yes, even though it's not the greatest, the visual effects at times, you know, on a pure technical level this is Tooney uh, Clooney's um, greatest accomplishment I think as a director yet in terms of really just kind of putting his toe into that very big budget sci-fi realm if you will so I give him points for that but man oh man he needs a better screenplay he needs a better screenplay that's it 
So when talking about the crafts of this movie and its Oscar potential, it does all lie with the crafts. I think we can all agree on that. So where does everybody have the crafts as of today? Production design. They love their space stations in that category. And at least with this one actually has an interesting design to it. Yeah, it's very unique. Um, a very unique design to like the spacecraft in particular. And it, I think it's sort of still in the bubble in that category. I kind of feel like it go either way, but I do think that it it's looking good for it to get in. I don't even have it in my 10. Really? I, I'm telling you, Matt, I think that's stupid. There, If there is a space movie that is even slightly prestigious, it gets it in this category. Yeah, they yeah. tend to. Gravity got in there for, like, the most generic space stations. <laughs> like, I mean... <laughs> yeah, I have to give you points on the space station. I, I have to say that uh, I wanted to see more of the ship. Mm, yeah. And, and that's something I rarely uh, think about in terms of a space movie. So kudos to them for that. And then uh, next up is sound. Only one category this year. How are you guys feeling about that? Nah, I don't think that's happening. Nah. Nah. I'll, I'll, I'll be curious to go back uh, pretty soon and see collectively if the whole site now that, you know, majority of us have seen the movie, if we move it out of our five, because it is, uh, according to the site, as of the 23rd, still in our top five for sound. Like It could happen. Yeah, like I wouldn't I count it out. If, yeah. And then visual effects, it is actually uh, number two right now on the NBP ranking at the moment. So and that is <laughs> the nature of the year. Like, yeah. It's, yeah. It's not really a mark of the quality of the visual effects. That is because everything else that would be real competition has exited the year. Yeah. <laughs> now, Looking at score, which is a much more competitive category at the moment, uh, Midnight Sky is currently sitting at number four uh, as of the 23rd from the entire MVP team. What do you guys think individually? You think Dust Plot is in from name name checking alone? Yes. Yeah, from the name check and because this movie is like <laughs> literally all about the score. Yeah. It is and- like it's just. It banks a lot on that score, and he's doing a lot. So I think it stands a really good chance. Yeah, I would rank it second behind Soul. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, all of the branches, especially below the line, are pretty guilty of, like, name-checking people that they just like. And I think of all of them, the score branch is maybe the worst at it. (laughs) So, yeah, I think, honestly, even if the score was just sort of forgettable, he would still get in. And it is dropping currently in our cinematography predictions, but still in the top 10. What do you guys think about it in cinematography? Nah. Uh, I like in the 10, maybe, but I think that's most of the like, is this cinematography or is this visual effects kind of nomination? Yeah, and cinematography is one of those below the line categories where. They don't really nominate too many middling movies. Like, you usually Mm kind of actually have to be a pretty strong contender to get in. And I don't think that The Midnight Sky really is in that position right now. And, like, the cinematography is fine. It, it, at times, is actually pretty good. But it's getting kind of crowded in that category of, like, top-tier contenders. And I think that's going to squeeze that movie out of the top five. 
Yeah, and the cinematographers really, uh, they, they do uh, respond to names. Like Caleb Deschanel got nominated for the German film. Uh, a few years ago, never look away. Yeah, yeah. they will. Yeah. They will really go out of their way to uh, uh, reward cinematographers they respect, and that's why I think I don't think this one's going to make it. All right, so probably at minimum two nominations. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say at minimum. Yeah, I would say production design and score. Yeah, I would say, and that's probably like it's weird because that's probably where it maxes out too. Like, really? Well, visual effects. So three is where I think it most likely ends up, if you ask me. If like, we'll see if it's got to make the bake off first. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but the problem sure. is that we don't have anything like on this scale that would like normally edge it out. Like, I think that's the problem is that it is going to be a nominee. I think rather by default because. It's like this and Tenet are really the only big scale visual effects spectacles that we have this year. Uh, well, I mean, it, the visual effects in it are not as good as in those films, but Wonder Woman 1984 would like a word. <laughs> well, I mean, the last Wonder Woman didn't get any nominations. And, and it was an infinitely this, better movie, but it was in an infinitely stronger year, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the visual effects category for this year is still is a mystery to me in terms of what they will go for because the normal types of contenders that you would automatically think, okay, yeah, they're going to go for this. If this movie is received well, those movies are not here this year. There is no Dune. There is no, no time to die. <laughs> like there's no Marvel movie. It, yeah. yeah. It, it's pretty shocking. And so Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, birds of prey, invisible man. Yeah. I was going to say invisible man. Like, there are a lot of outside-the-box contenders that in a normal year would just be happy to make the short list, if you ask me, you know? <laughs> but these are the films that are competing for, I think, three slots, because I really do believe that Tenet and Midnight Sky have two of those slots locked up. I tend to agree with that. Like, I don't... I don't necessarily think that the Midnight Sky is in a position to win anything, but I do think, especially for visual effects, with so many of the normal contenders not present this season, that that has only helped assure a nomination for it in visual effects. Anything else about the Midnight Sky's award season prospects? I think we covered basically everything that it would yeah. possibly get. Because like we said, it, it'll be uh, a player below the line, but nothing in the major categories. No. Okay. Alrighty then. Dan Bear, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me at Dance and Dan on Film on Twitter. Tom O'Brien. You can join me on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. Josh Parham. You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of The Midnight Sky here on the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time.
This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.